Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. And this morning, we are going to look together and study together what uh, probably are the two most well-known verses uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome. Um, I would imagine that some of you, if not many of you, uh, have one or two of these verses memorized. Uh, For you young people that are Lecrae fans, uh, this is where uh, he came up with that 116 title, name, uh, for his uh, group of rappers, but um, we're talking about Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Father, we thank you for this letter that you preserve for us in your word, that we might study it, that we might understand it and seek to apply it and live it out in our lives. And so we pray once again that your spirit would come, the same spirit that inspired these two verses would now illuminate our minds to understand what you meant by what Paul penned here and that you would also empower us by your spirit to live these verses out in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, a month or so ago, Uh, churches around the world celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, the event that typically comes to mind when we think about what launched the Reformation is when Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. Uh, Luther was a young monk who had become increasingly disillusioned with the doctrine of the Catholic Church in his day, um, and uh, particularly the unbiblical sacrilegious sale of indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And if you're not familiar with what an indulgence is, um, the church authorities declared that anyone who said certain prayers or did certain good deeds or paid a certain amount of money would have their punishment or the punishment of a family member or friend in in purgatory reduced. In other words, time off for good behavior. Tetzel was the one that gave Luther the most angst when Tetzel began selling indulgences in his the town in which he ministered, uh, Luther heard him say his famous line, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And this was a sales pitch Tetzel was famous for, and, uh, and Luther couldn't stand it, and so he came up with these 95 theses confronting uh, the sale of indulgences. Well, As important as that event was, what actually started the Reformation was a lesser known event in Luther's life that happened about seven years earlier. And I'm referring to when he climbed the 28 steps of the Scala Sancta, the holy staircase in Rome. Let me explain. When uh, Luther was 21, he was in college studying law because his father wanted him to be a lawyer. But his life took a dramatic turn when he was caught in a severe thunderstorm and was knocked to the ground by a nearby lightning strike. And he was terrified. And he cried out in fear, not to Christ, but to the Catholic patron saint of minors, Saint Anna. And he said, Saint Anna, help me, and I'll become a monk. Well, Luther survived the storm, and two weeks later, he joined the monastery in Erfurt, Germany, 
which made his father furious because he felt like Luther was wasting his education. But Luther was committed to follow through on his vow that he had made to the Lord, or I guess to St. Anne. And in the monastery, Luther set out to earn God's favor and save his soul through strict adherence to the monastic orders. And so he fasted and he prayed and he did all sorts of menial tasks and he beat himself with with whips and he practically froze himself to death. He went to confession constantly over all sorts of trivial sins to the point the priest got so frustrated with Luther that they told him not to come back until he committed some sin worthy of confessing. He wrote in a letter that if anyone could earn their way to heaven by their own good works, it was him. And yet despite all of his rigorous effort, he had no peace with God. And he often fell in despair about the fact that he would never be saved. In fact, instead of loving God, he admitted that he actually hated God for making the standard of righteousness so impossible. And he was tormented by the thought that that no matter what he did, he could never measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness and escape God's judgment and, and live forever in his holy presence. Well, in 1510, Luther was sent to Rome on church business. But he viewed this trip to the holy city as a pilgrimage, which gave him the opportunity to visit all the sacred relics and, and shrines. And one of the most venerated places in Rome is called the Scala Sancta, the sacred steps or the holy steps. And according to Catholic tradition, these are the steps that Jesus walked up when he was tried by Pilate in Jerusalem. And when Roman Emperor Constantine uh, legalized Christianity in the fourth century, he commissioned his mother, St. Helena, who was a devout Christian, to go to the Holy Land and find relics to bring back to Rome. And legend says that she was quite a relic hunter. She found the actual cross on which Jesus was crucified, along with the nails and his robe and some pieces of the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. Or so the tradition goes. Well, one of her supposed finds were the marble steps that led to the palace of Pontius Pilate. And so she had them brought back to Rome on a ship and reassembled near the Basilica of St. John in Lateran. And ever since then, pious pilgrims who go to Rome have climbed these steps on their knees as a sign of humble contrition for their sin and to gain indulgences for themselves or their loved ones. In fact, it's still happening today. Just go on YouTube and type in the Scala Sanctus or the Holy Staircase and you can watch pilgrims from around the world climbing up these steps on their knees seeking favor with God. Now, what's different about the stairs today, there's a layer of wood that's been placed over the marble in order to preserve the steps from all the people that have been climbing on that, but they still have these glass holes in the wood in certain spots along the steps where pilgrims stop and they kiss the stairs or the wood, the glass uh, see-through hole, where they say are actual bloodstains of Jesus Christ on those steps. Well, When Luther went to Rome, this was on his bucket list. He had to go to the Scala Sancta. And as he crawled up these so-called sacred steps, dutifully reciting his prayers alongside all these other pious Catholics, the words of the prophet Habakkuk suddenly came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. And it was as if he was struck by another lightning bolt of sorts, a more spiritual lightning bolt. Some say that Luther made it to the top of the stairs and simply mumbled to himself, who knows if this is true, and walked back down and left. Others record that he never made it to the top, but halfway up when he remembered Habakkuk's words, he was so appalled by the superstitious folly of what he was doing and what he was seeing all around him that he jumped to his feet and he fled. 
Well, whatever happened, God used this experience along with the, the blatant corruption in the church and among his fellow priests that he had witnessed while he was in Rome to turn Luther's life upside down. Just one example, uh, when Luther was celebrating mass in Rome alongside his fellow priests, when it was his turn to, to, to perform the mass, they, 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 they thought he was taking too long and, 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 and uh, he was so, he had such a high view of the mass that he was taking all this time to make sure he was honoring the Lord and, and the, the guys were like, hey, hurry up, man, let's go. We got some beer to drink and some other things to do and, and, and they just live licentious lives and, 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 and this, is the, this is the young monk that the first time he ever, ever uh, presided over a mass, he almost passed out. That's how serious he, he took this. And he couldn't believe just the, the, the sacrilegious uh, attitudes of these priests in Rome. Well, according to the testimony of Luther's own son, it was after this disappointing trip to Rome that his father returned to Wittenberg and in time took the just shall live by faith as his chief foundation of all his doctrine. And as Luther uh, poured over the, the Bible, particularly the book of Romans. He concluded that what the church in his day was teaching about how a person is saved was way out of line with Scripture. And he came to the, to the glorious realization that, that neither he or anyone else could earn salvation by crawling up steps or doing any other good works, but by simply and solely trusting in the work that Christ had accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. In other words, Luther came to the conclusion that, that salvation is a free gift for guilty people, not a reward for good people. A person is justified or declared right with God only by faith in the work of Christ, which is imputed or credited to or applied to their spiritual account as a result of believing the gospel. So all that to say, whenever you think about the Protestant Reformation, you shouldn't just think of the 95 Thesis, you should also think of the 28 steps. Because those steps are really where the Reformation started. Because that unforgettable moment on the scale of Sanctus served as a profound analogy in Luther's mind that sinful men cannot ascend to God, but God must ascend, descend, excuse me, to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that, that the one verse in Romans that, that Luther meditated on more than any other verse and the one verse that God used to lead him to salvation was Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. How ironic that Paul quoted the same exact verse from Habakkuk that Luther remembered on those steps 15 centuries later after Paul had written this letter to the believers in Rome. And Luther said of this particular verse, he said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became, became to me a gateway to heaven. Paul got saved studying this passage. Well, this obviously is a pivotal, pivotal text here, um, along with the one, the verse that comes before it, verses 16 and 17. Why? Well, it really serves as the climax of Paul's introduction to the churches in Rome. And it also serves as the theme of the entire letter. In fact, these two verses summarize the whole argument of the book of Romans. And hopefully you saved uh, the little sheet that I handed out when we started this study. If you uh, lost it or forgot it, there's some on the back table. But I just want to remind you of this little roadmap for Romans. Uh, we don't want to get uh, lost uh, in the forest, right? We lose sight of the forest for all the trees. And so uh, this is our little map to kind of keep us, uh, give us our bearings wherever we're at in our study. But uh, I want you to notice uh, the common theme throughout this entire letter. 
after the introduction, we begin to see Paul uh, unpack this whole idea of the righteousness of God. And we see the lack of righteousness, we see the gift of righteousness, the result of righteousness, and the scope of righteousness. Then we go on to chapter 12 and following, and we see how he takes the gospel and applies it to our lives, and we see the life of righteousness. So this whole letter um, is about God's righteousness, specifically how God graciously imputes or applies his righteousness to unrighteous sinners who place their faith in his son, Jesus, so they can be saved from his wrath. And here in verse 17 is the first time Paul mentioned the word righteousness, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And by the time he was done dictating this letter through his amanuensis, that we learn about in, in chapter 16, he had used the word in, in one way or another, the word justification, or excuse me, the word righteousness, one way or another over 60 times. This, this word has a lot of different translations, if you will, or applications. And so we, well, we're gonna see the word righteous, righteousness, just, justified, justification. It all means the same thing. And in fact, the phrase there in verse 17, the righteousness of God occurs eight times in this letter. And uh, interesting, he launches into the subject of the righteousness of God and, and it's almost as if we get our hopes up and, uh, and yet he never mentions it again until we get to chapter three and we're gonna begin to see why uh, he introduces it here in verse 17, but then takes a huge, very significant rabbit trail in the end of chapter one, chapter two, and the beginning of chapter three to describe the unrighteousness of man. In other words, before you can appreciate the righteousness of God, you need to understand the unrighteousness of man. And so we're gonna begin looking at this whole concept of the righteousness of God this morning, but it's gonna, by the time we're done studying this letter, it's gonna sound like a broken record probably, but hopefully a, a song that uh, we, we love to hear over and over and over again. But before we get into that, uh, let's consider the statement that Paul made leading up to the main theme of God's righteousness. Notice what he said in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul had just stated that he felt obligated, verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He also said that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so he's under obligation, he's eager, and now he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Which, by the way, is something that every Christian should be able to say with the same confidence as Paul. Can you honestly say that? Can you boldly declare, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Listen, if we're honest, I think most of us who call ourselves Christians at one time or another have been intimidated or embarrassed to share the gospel with someone. Can, can we all admit that? There, there have been moments when, when, when we've just, we've, we've not done it. Why? Why is that? Why? 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 Are we tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, I think it's because we know that the gospel is often unattractive, even repulsive to unbelievers because it confronts their sin and it demands that they repent of it. And most sinners don't want to repent of their sin. They love their sin. They want to keep doing it. At the same time, it exposes and shatters people's self-righteous efforts to earn God's favor. Those who maybe don't think that they're as bad as the Bible says they are, they think they're pretty good. In fact, they think their good works are going to out their way, their bad works, and they're on their way to heaven. And yet the gospel exposes and shatters their self-righteousness, and consequently, the gospel is rarely well-received. I mean, I think all of us could probably count on one hand, if that, the times that we've shared the gospel with someone, and, and it's been well received. It's been uh, appreciated and embraced. 
Typically, it causes irritation. It, it causes opposition. It, it, it creates an awkwardness in the relationship. And so we avoid sharing the gospel with others because we're, we're scared of what people might think of us or how they might treat us. We fear being criticized and made fun of or, or worst of all, shunned. Or perhaps we just don't want to be embarrassed if they ask us a question or, or present some counter-argument that we aren't prepared for, that we can't answer. That's embarrassing. How about this for an honest answer? Hey, you know what? That's a great question. Let me look into that and I'll get back to you. Don't need to be embarrassed. Don't need to be ashamed. That just wins another day, right? It gives you another opportunity to follow up them later. Jesus himself knew that his followers might be ashamed or embarrassed to identify with him. That's why he said in, in Mark uh, chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verse 38, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus knew that that was going to be a temptation for his followers. In fact, his concern was confirmed when his boldest disciple, Peter, was ashamed to admit that he even knew Jesus and he denied him three times in a row on one night. Paul told his timid young disciple, Timothy, to not be ashamed of, of him be associated with him or the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, we can start in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then verse 12, Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Listen, Paul was speaking from experience. I mean, if there was anyone who might have been gun shy to, to share the gospel, it would have been Paul. I mean, just think about all the things that he endured for the sake of the gospel. He was imprisoned in Philippi and chased out of Thessalonica. He was, had to be smuggled out of Berea. He was ridiculed, laughed at in Athens, called a sea picker. He was considered a fool in Corinth. He was actually stoned and left for dead in Galatia. These are just a few things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Paul admitted that the gospel was a stumbling block to his fellow Jews who considered him a traitor for, for, in their minds, abandoning the law. And now he was looking to go to Rome and he, he knew the Romans despised the Jews and, and crucifixion. I mean, let's not even get into that, right? That was the worst form of execution reserved for the worst of criminals. And so Paul knew that the gospel that he preached was all about putting your faith in a crucified Jewish carpenter. Like, who would want to do that? And as we're going to learn, Paul also suspected that rumors about him and the gospel he preached were already circulating in Rome. You can look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Paul knew that some were saying, hey, this message of grace, man, that's gonna just encourage sin. And Paul addresses that later in, in Romans chapter five and six when, when he says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yeah, that's what I believe. That's the gospel. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Shall, shall we just, does that mean we get to just keep on sinning so that we get more grace? Absolutely not. God forbid. And so there was no telling what would happen to Paul when he showed up in Rome. The most powerful, perverse, pagan city in the world at the time. And yet he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Rather than being gun shy about sharing the gospel, he was, what we learned last week, he was gung ho for the gospel. It's a great question to ask ourselves. Are we gun shy or gung ho when it comes to the gospel? We need to be more like Paul. Less gun shy, more gung ho. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he goes on to explain the reasons for his bold confidence to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. Doesn't matter to me. If they don't know Jesus, they're gonna hear about it from me. And so how I wanna look at this passage with, with you this morning is, is just uh, in these two verses, we see three reasons why we should never be ashamed of the gospel. Paul's telling us why he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, but I think the application for us is, well, okay, well, why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? It's the same reasons why Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. What are these reasons? Number one, the gospel is effectual. It's another word for powerful. Um, the gospel, number two, is universal. It applies to every man. And, and thirdly, it's radical. It... it, it uh, reveals a radical way that God designed to make us right with him. And so let's look at these three reasons one at a time this morning why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. First of all, the gospel is effectual. In other words, let's look at what it does. Let's look at what it does. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation. In other words, the gospel is the, the one and only message that has the power to totally transform a person's life. And Paul himself had experienced this transforming power of the gospel in his own life. When, when he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, and, 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 the, and in that moment, the greatest persecutor of the church was converted, radically changed into the greatest preacher that the church has ever known. And not only that, during his three missionary journeys as he traveled around as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul saw the power of the gospel change people's lives in city after city after city. And he knew, based on that, that the gospel would also be effectual in Rome as well. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and a Gentile's foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul is basically saying, I don't care what the world thinks about the gospel. In my mind, in my experience, it is the power of God. It is the most powerful thing I've ever experienced in my life. It changed my life. It radically altered the course of my life. And it also has secured my destiny forever. And so we need to remember that when the gospel is preached, when God's gospel is preached, not your words, right? Not, not just, you, but no, when you preach the gospel, when you share God's gospel, God's power is unleashed. And I know you probably have experienced this. 
Maybe you got into a conversation with a, a family member or a friend or a coworker or a classmate that, that doesn't, didn't know the Lord and, and you began to talk with them and you were just kind of talking and, and, and as long as it stayed on a conversational level where they were sharing their opinions and you were sharing your opinions and your, their ideas and your ideas, there, there wasn't, you didn't get much traction. They maybe appreciated the, the debate. But as soon as you turn to the scriptures and begin to read the scriptures and quote scripture, and as verse after verse after verse was read or quoted, the conversation changed, didn't it? They got uncomfortable. Either they got madder, <laughs> um, more adversarial, or they wanted to shut it off and, and end it and, and walk away. Why? Because they weren't dealing with your power of intellect or your eloquence. They were dealing with the power of God's word. And it's only through the message of the gospel that God can powerfully save. The word salvation there means to deliver, to rescue people from sin, death, and hell. And we need to understand when Paul used the word salvation, he wasn't just talking about getting saved, the, 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 the day that you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Christ, you got saved. Well, actually, you got partially saved, if you will. Don't think I'm a heretic. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter five. He says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, verse eight, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Again, in verse 10, he uses the expression, we shall be saved. There's a future element of our salvation. How are we to understand this? Well, I think salvation is being delivered or saved or rescued from the penalty of sin, that happens when we're justified. When we're declared righteous by God, we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin. He puts that payment on Christ. Christ paid for our sin. We acknowledge that. We're justified. Salvation means we're also delivered or rescued from the power of sin. In, in our daily life as Christians, this is what we call sanctification, that sin no longer has the power over us. We're gonna see this in chapters six, seven, and eight and how we no longer have to sin. And then ultimately, there will come a day that we will even be saved and delivered from the presence of sin. That song that we sing from time to time, saved to sin no more. That will be the day in heaven when we will be glorified. And so when, when Paul uses this word salvation, don't just think about it, yeah, I got saved at summer camp, or I got saved you know, when I was this age, or I got saved over here or this time and I walked the aisle. Don't think about the event of your salvation so much as the full-orbed understanding that you were justified, you're being sanctified, and you will be glorified. And that's what Paul meant by you'll be saved from the wrath of God. When Christ returns to pour out his wrath on this earth, you will be protected. You'll be rescued, you'll be delivered. You'll never have to experience God's wrath. And whether people realize it or not, this is what they need more than anything else. Salvation, salvation, this is what they need. They need to be saved from the penalty of sin. They need to be saved from the power of sin. And they need to be saved from the presence of sin. And only the gospel has the power to save them from these things. And so, first of all, the gospel is effectual. The gospel is effectual. We shouldn't be ashamed of this powerful message that we've been entrusted with to share with others. Secondly, it's universal. It's, it's universal. And, and here we're looking at not what it does now, but who it does it to. What does is, what is the power of the gospel do? Or, or what is, who, who, who does it do it to? Notice it says here, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice Paul didn't say, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who behaves a certain way. 
That's not in your Bible, is it? I hope not. Because if it is, you got to get rid of that Bible. You got a bad one or something. I don't know what happened. No, he says those who believe, those who trust in or rely on, have faith in someone or something. We understand this, this concept of belief or faith better than we realize. Why? Because we are exercising faith every day, all the time, without even thinking about it. Every time you go to the soda machine, right, and you put some money in and the thing drops down, you pull that thing out, you crack it open, and you just don't even, you don't look at it, like, okay, make sure this thing is not defective. You just crack that thing open and you drink it and you're, you're just assuming it's safe. You're trusting that, that it's safe to drink. I don't know about you, but when I go over a bridge, I don't pull over first and stop and get out and go and check the bridge and look under it and make sure everything's fine before I drive over. I just go over the bridge. Why? I'm trusting that it will hold me. It won't collapse. When we get on an airplane, we, we're not out there alongside the pilot checking the wings and the engine and looking at all this stuff. We're not out there. Um, we're just sitting in our chair probably you know, reading a magazine or talking to somebody or checking out what's going to be on, you know, the movies that are coming up on the, you know, we're not, what, why are we doing? We, we, we trust, we rely on the laws of physics and, and competent pilots to, to get us to our destination safely. All of those things, we're exercising faith. And in the same way, we must have faith in the gospel. We must believe the gospel message that says we can be saved from our sin and delivered from death and hell and spend eternity in heaven, not based on anything we do, but simply by trusting in or relying on what Christ has done. And as we're going to see in the next verse, we are saved by faith, what? Alone. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And so he says it's the power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, this is a great reminder to us that the gospel is not an exclusive message to certain individuals or to a particular people group. It's a message that God wants everyone in the entire world to hear and embrace. And Paul mentions this, this same phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek a number of times in this letter, chapter 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, chapter 4, verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the righteous, that righteousness might be credited to them. In other words, it's not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And then here we get to the, the place where he actually mentions this phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek uh, in chapter 10, verse four. Uh, excuse me, uh, for Christ is, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who Believes and, and again here in chapter eleven or chapter ten verses eleven and twelve for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on Him for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I didn't read verse eleven. The Scripture says whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. So what is Paul getting at here? when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greeks, if it doesn't matter, why does it seem like he's giving preference to, to the Jews here? Well, whenever you study the book of Acts, you'll notice that when Paul went to a new city, he would always go where first? He'd always go to the synagogues, right? He'd find the synagogue and he'd preach to the Jews. And then after that, he would go to the marketplace and preach to the Gentiles. Why? Well, it was because of who the Jews are. They had chronological priority. The Jews are God's chosen people, and it was through them that he ordained salvation to come to the entire world. He raised them up to be the, the witness nation, if you will, 
that all the nations of the world would come to know the one true Jehovah God. Jesus said in John 4, 22, salvation is from the Jews. In other words, Jesus was a Jew. He was a, the Messiah came through uh, the, the line of the Jews. Uh, in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when the Messiah came in fulfillment of all the promises and the oracles of God that were entrusted to the Jews, he, he mentions that in Romans chapter three, verse two, He says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the Hebrews were the ones who got the scriptures. The Old Testament is Jewish. And so they got the scriptures. And so the Jews got the scriptures and they got the Messiah. And so guess what? They have first dibs. They have the first right of refusal, if you will. And when they refused Christ, they rejected Christ as their Messiah. God set his people aside for a time and extended the invitation of salvation to the Gentiles. Now, just because God has included the Gentiles in, in his plan of salvation doesn't mean the Jews no longer have a place in God's long-term kingdom plans or purposes. And we're gonna learn about that in, in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul took three whole chapters to reassure the Jews that, hey, God hasn't forgotten about you. You still have a part in his plan. And in the end times, God will refocus on the Jewish people and on the land of Israel. But in the meantime, the gospel is to be presented without distinction to both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, it doesn't matter if you're Gentile. You're a sinner who needs a savior. And God's bringing a group of people together where there's no longer Jews, there's no longer Gentiles. We're Christians. We're believers. We're followers of Christ. And so we see that the gospel is, is universal. And, and, and because it's universal, it's the most relevant message that people all, all over the world could ever hear. It applies to every person on this planet. It's not like, you know, we have a target audience, that what we're selling here, right, it, uh, really only applies to this group of people. And so we're going to market it to this group of people. No, guess what? You don't have to market the gospel. You don't have to make the gospel relevant. It is relevant. And every person from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation can relate to the gospel. Because again, it meets their greatest need of salvation. And so I guess all that to say, you're never going to meet a person that doesn't need to hear the gospel. Because it relates to every man and every woman. And so the gospel is effectual. It's universal. And then thirdly, it's radical. It's radical. And, and don't just apply the normal definition of radical to that. I'm not thinking about, you know, some X Games dude who's radical, radical dude, right? I'm not talking about radical in that way. Uh, hang on to that thought, and I want to explain why I chose that word radical. And, and what we're talking about here, and, and now in verse 17, is, okay, how it does it. We, we, we know what it does. It, it has the power, the gospel has the power to save people, to transform their lives, and, and, and we know who it does it to, to everyone who believes. Anybody who repents and believes in the gospel, right? It'll transform their life. But how does it happen? How does it work? And Paul tells us here in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Again, this is the first time the word righteousness is used, and the phrase, the righteousness of God, is used in this letter. And it's crucial that we understand what Paul was saying here in verse 17, because how we interpret this verse will determine how we interpret the rest of this entire letter. And let me just say, there has been a lot of ink spilled throughout the history of the church in an effort to explain 
this verse. And the main discussion that goes on in commentaries and in books revolves around the Greek construction of this phrase, the righteousness of God. What was Paul, what did Paul mean by this phrase, the righteousness of God? Is it the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God? There's lots of different ways you can interpret this phrase. And, and there's really three possible ways to view what Paul was saying here. You could view it as, as, as an attribute, that righteousness is an attribute. In other words, Paul was simply describing God's character, the righteousness of God, that he's perfectly holy and he always does what is right, just, proper. There's no wrong. There's no dishonesty or unfairness in him. So that's one way to view the righteousness of God. Uh, some suggest that, that this is more the activity of God, the righteousness of God. In other words, Paul was describing God's method of justifying unrighteous sinners based on the fact that his son, Jesus, fulfilled all righteousness and satisfied all the requirements of divine justice by dying uh, in the place of all those who would believe in him. So it's more the, the activity of God. And, and, and others would, would, would say, suggest that really this phrase, the righteousness of God, is more of what we could call, to stick with the alliteration, an award. Not a reward, an award. In other words, Paul was describing the gift. Use that, think of an, a gift more than an award. But Paul was describing the gift of his righteousness that he provides people on the basis of their faith in Christ by imputing, uh, crediting his righteousness to their account. And so God views them as if they kept his law perfectly just like Christ did. Now, here the analogy of scripture comes in handy and by the analogy of scripture I mean cross-referencing. And there's only one other time that Paul used this phrase, the righteousness of God, outside of the book of Romans, and it was in his second letter to the church in Corinth. I turn over to 2 Corinthians for a moment, chapter 5, verse 21, to see if we can get some help as to how we're to understand this phrase, the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, he made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God in him. Here we have what's referred to as the doctrine of imputation, something that is transferred or credited or applied to another person's account. And so what Paul is saying here is that when Christ died on the cross, our sinful unrighteousness was imputed or credited or transferred or applied to his account. And when we place our faith in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, his perfect righteousness is imputed, credit, credited, transferred, applied to our account. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, God treated him as if he had lived our sinful life so that now God can treat us like we lived his sinless life. That's the doctrine of imputation. And, and by the way, this is legal, what theologians call forensic righteousness, this righteousness of God. And in other words, it's not moral or actual. It's a, it's a declaration that, that God declares us righteous while we actually are still what? Unrighteous. We are simultaneously saints and sinners all at the same time. In fact, that was a, a famous statement in the, in, during the Re Reformation was this whole saint-sinner dichotomy. Well, what am I? I feel like a spiritual schizophrenic. Am I a saint or am I a sinner? You're both. But the good news is you are declared righteous by God. And the goal of the Christian life, right, is to have our lives match up with who we are viewed as in heaven, as these holy saints. 
And so it's not just, oh, you're declared righteous and you can just keep on sinning and, and you'll still be kept declared righteous. No, we're declared righteous and we want our lives to be in demonstrating the fact that we are growing in righteousness. We're becoming less and less unrighteous and more and more righteous. And so the righteousness that God provides us here, and I think that's the idea, that God provides us righteousness is sometimes referred to as alien righteousness, which means it comes from somewhere else. In other words, you don't have the righteousness you need to get to heaven. I don't have the righteousness I need to get to heaven. It's got to come from somewhere, someone else. It's alien righteousness. And it's also referred to as radical righteousness. And that's why I chose to use this word, radical righteousness. Believe it or not, it's a theological term, meaning that something radical must be done to make a sinner righteous because we're not righteous. And we'll never be perfectly righteous while we're on this earth. And so our sinful nature must be replaced entirely by a new nature. Something radical needs to take place and only God has the power to do something that radical. You don't have the power, I don't have the power, we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to create such a radical change in our lives. Now, I knew about this passage just enough before I began studying it for this morning to scare me because I knew it was the, the theme. This is the, this is the granddaddy of them all. This is the, right, you can't get this. You, you might be able to miss something. So you can't get this one wrong. And, and, and there's like pages and pages and pages of things to read about what is going on here. And is this a, you know, is this a, is this a possessive genitive? Is this a subjective genitive? Is this an objective genitive? And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. I got to decide. I got to make it. That's the pressure. You know, Sundays are coming and you got to make a decision. And what do you believe? And, 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 and the more I, I studied this, I, I just, I was looking at these three different views and they all began to blur together in my mind. And I hope this isn't a cop-out, but it, it, it occurred to me that it's possible that Paul had all these things in his mind. I mean, the righteousness of God is this magnificent subject that includes everything that is suggested that it might mean. It's not an either-or. Well, it either means this or it means this. No, it's a both-and. It means that and that and that and that and that. It's a big enough topic that it can cover everything you can possibly think of as it relates to the righteousness of God. And so I came up with a statement just to help me think about it, pulling all these things together. Is it an attribute? Is it an activity? Is it an award or a gift? What what is it? Listen, it's all three. Our righteous God demonstrates his righteousness by giving us his righteousness. Is that confusing? It, it, it should be. <laughs> really, I'm trying to make it really simple. Listen, our righteous God demonstrates his righteousness. Okay, our righteous God, that's the attribute. Demonstrates his righteousness, that's the, 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 the activity, by giving us his righteousness. That's the award, that's the gift. In other words, the righteousness of God, what Paul was referring to here, is who God is, what he does, and what he gives. It's all the above. And I appreciated John Stott as he was grappling with this same dilemma. And he said this, quote, I have never been able to see why we have to choose. I read that, I was like, okay, maybe I'm not so off base. I'm not off the reservation so far after all. There's another guy saying the same thing. And, and, and he says, why, why, why can't we combine all three? And this is his way, a little bit lengthier statement than what I just said. He said this, listen carefully, because you're gonna be like, when he's all done, but it's kind of funny. 
The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust, his righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous and he does it by faith when we put our trust in him. (laughs) That's a lot of righteousness going on there. God's showing us righteousness. God is righteous. He's showing us righteousness. And he's giving us righteousness. So all that to say, that phrase, the righteousness of God, is what we call a pregnant statement. Notice he says this righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's what Stott says at the end. He does it by faith when we put our trust in him. I've got a lot more that I wanted to say here, but I might just cut it off here because my resident, um, William Farrell, Randy Swearingen, told me, hey, don't rush through this passage, man. There's a lot there. Where are you going? Where are we going? Martin Lloyd-Jones, man, he like took five weeks to talk. Like, time out, Randy. Have you noticed? I'm nothing like Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay? I appreciate the sentiment, but... And so I think we'll stop here and, and pick up with this phrase at the end. What was he talking about? being revealed from faith to faith as written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Maybe I would just say this, and I think this would be the appropriate time to pause as we're coming to the end of the introduction to this great letter about the gospel. Can I just simply ask you, not do you know the gospel, Not can you share the gospel, but do you believe the gospel? Do you? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe this? You say, how do I know if I truly believe this? I've heard the gospel. I know I've heard the gospel. I, I think I know the gospel, I think I've even shared the gospel, but do I believe the gospel? How do you know that? Well, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In other words, you believe the gospel to the point that your life has been radically transformed by the gospel. You are different today than you were before you came to know Christ. You're changing, you're growing, you're more righteous today than you were yesterday. In other words, there's a decreasing frequency of sin in your life. That's a great test, a great evidence that you believe the gospel. If I could just remind you of what Paul said in verse five, that he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. That obedience of faith statement, it says it all. How, how do you know if you truly believe, if you have true, genuine, saving faith? Is the pattern of your life one of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel because it is the power of God. It's your power for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning depending on their work to make themselves right with you, that Lord, they would repent of their own self-righteousness 
And Lord, come to faith alone in Christ's work for them. Lord, coming to church is a, is a blessed thing, but it's also a scary place to be because we hear the truth all the time. And sometimes we assume that we know the truth when we really don't. And so I pray that you would confirm in all of our hearts, give us the assurance, Lord, that we are true believers in Christ. And Lord, as we think about this week when we're gonna be around lots of family members and friends around a table eating turkey and stuffing and watching football games and even playing a little football out in the backyard, Lord, that we wouldn't be embarrassed to share the gospel. This is one of the best opportunities we'll have all year this week and even Christmas coming up to be around unbelievers and I just pray that you would make us bold and that we would be at the same time gracious and winsome as we share the good news of salvation with those who need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.